Uh, thank you all for worshiping. Thank you for giving. And I hope you have a Bible. And if you do, let's open up to John chapter 9 this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. We'll end up covering most of this chapter in our time today. But I want to begin by hearing from John 9, 1 through 5, one of my favorite stories, one that speaks so powerfully to me and in my life and resonates so much with my story. I think that it'll resonate with your story, uh, and I hope and pray that uh, we'll have open hearts and minds to hear what God has to say to us tonight, today. John 9, verse number 1, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, neither. This man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed or on display in him. And then Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You know, if you're like me, if you grew up in church or if you've sort of believed in God for most of your life, um, there's probably one message you've heard throughout your life uh, that's really never changed. And even if you're not a believer, uh, you've probably heard people say, hey, this should be on your list of priorities. Um, It's a message that I certainly have heard since I was little, before I got saved, and ever since I've been a Christian. um, Pretty consistently, I've heard a message that's pretty much similar to this from a lot, in, in a lot of different ways, and I'm sure you've heard it before, uh, a message that says, God wants me to have more faith in him. God wants more of my trust. And really, any given Sunday, most of the time, the message comes down to this, that God wants us to have more faith or that we should trust in God more. We should be more devoted to God. And, and more often than not, a message on any given Sunday in any given church, the premise of it or the invitation therein is, hey, you should put faith in or you should put more faith in God. Now, I know that I've sat in pews right where you are today, and I've thought, and even in my time in the pulpit, I've thought this as well, um, I've thought that, that uh, something that maybe that you're thinking right now, maybe you've thought before, um, my response to this command or this message, have more faith, or you should have more faith, or why don't you have more faith, uh, uh, by all means you should, my response has often been this, well, maybe if God showed me more of his power, then I would have more faith. Then I, yeah, the preacher, week after week, you should believe more, you should trust more, you should have more faith, you shouldn't waver or doubt. My response has often been, well, if God would just make his power known to me more clearly, then I would have more faith and it would become more easy to me. And we think, hey, God, if you want me to have more confidence in you, then just show me what you're made of. And we don't do it defiantly or arrogantly, we we do it sincerely. Because, hey, if God is God and he wants more of my faith, then why why doesn't he just convince me? And and go on, if, if God is God after all, then it shouldn't really take much effort on his part to just give me a little bit more assurance. We, we, we sing that song, Blessed Assurance, but sometimes we want a little bit more than maybe we have already been given. Uh, I mean, God, how about a miracle or two? And God, clearly you know there's a lot in my life that could, that could use your miracle working power. How about some signs? How about some wonders? God, if you just demonstrate your power, then more faith will come easily and naturally to me. But I've sat where you've sat. And I've stood in this place, and I've 
asked that and I've prayed that and I've thought that and alas, God must not want more of my faith because he just won't give me the miracle, the sign, the wonder that I really need in order to know for sure that he is who he says he is. So I just cross my arms and end up never obtaining more faith because God just won't do enough to impress me. <laughs> now, if you can't tell, I'm, I'm making light of, of this attitude a little bit uh, that I've had before, that maybe you've had or maybe you have, and maybe you think it's a pretty good argument or a pretty good stance to take. Uh, maybe you just honestly don't understand why God doesn't just ooh and awe all of us into being more devoted and more believing and more confident people uh, in him. After all, isn't that how he got Israel's attention? If you know your Bibles, like I'm sure most of you do, isn't that how God got Israel to believe in him? Didn't he crawl part the Red Sea and, and, and ooh and awe them? Didn't he give them manna from heaven? Didn't he give them a land flowing of milk and honey? Didn't he give them houses they didn't build, wells they didn't dig, vineyards they didn't plant? And yes, yes, yes to all of that. Absolutely he did. But I want to present something to you that might make it a little bit different for us than it was for them. Do you know what we know that Israel didn't know? We know so much about God, about what God has done, and how his power can be recognized every single day, that if Israel had known the half of it, none of those signs or wonders would have even been required. We have so much evidence of what God has done and what God is constantly doing that no further evidence should ever be required because there's enough right now in front of our eyes every single day that should leave us speechless and bow down to the earth that should cause all of us to declare our faith in him and put more faith in him. But you know what I think is true for a lot of us? I think God is so apparent and God's works are so well documented and established that we fail to truly appreciate him or what he's done and all he's doing. I think we are so surrounded by the evidence of God's power and wonder that we've become numb to it all. And yet, we still demand more of him. We still demand signs and wonders from him. And we still are ask, acting as if God needs to prove himself to us, even though there is so much proof. And God's like, what more do you want me to do? What more proof do you want than I've not already given you and that you benefit from every day? You know, with all the scientific discoveries about the universe, our galaxy, our solar system, you know what we've learned and what we should know? That it is a miracle beyond all miracles that our little rock suspended in outer space can't sustain life because none of the other thousands of floating balls of rocks or gas even come close to being habitable. They're either too hot or they're too cold. And it wasn't until recently that the world knew this. You go back a few hundred years and they didn't even know that, that there were any other balls of gas or rocks around the, the universe. They thought it was just us. But by the grace of God, we know by the design of God, our earth is one of a kind. But we don't think about that miracle, do we? You know, that science that we're often a little bit weary of actually highlights one of the most amazing signs from God to us. 
But we still demand, don't we? God, show us a sign. We're just like the crowds when Jesus was on earth. What sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Jesus, we need more proof. We need some signs and wonders. We need some miracles. And if you just give us one more, maybe we'll believe all the more. But God says, speaking of seeing, have you considered, and of course you haven't, but you should because it's out there to know. Do you realize that we see through two 500 megapixel lens every single day? You know, your phone has like a 10, 12 megapixel camera. Do you realize that these two things, 500, even the weakest of vision, 500 megapixels that you are processing the world through? You never think about that, do you? Do you realize that your eyes are tethered to a processor that would make even the strongest of computers blush with the power that our minds are processing all of the time, all the information at all times? We don't think about that stuff, do we? We live in an age of information and explanation, all of which declares the glory, the power, and the works of God. But, 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 but Justin, are you really going to compare all that stuff with God working a miracle? Yeah, I absolutely am. Are you going to compare all that stuff with God healing someone without any explanation? Yeah, I'm actually, absolutely going to do that. Let me ask you a question. What's more remarkable? What's more miraculous? That God would heal someone, someone with the snap of his fingers? Or that a mere mortal can acquire enough knowledge and implement man-made instruments and human engineering to somehow perform surgeries that nobody thought was possible 100 years ago? What's more miraculous? That God could just do it, and of course he can do it, or that God somehow could make the information available to a generation that people 100 years ago would never even imagine it was even performable. Go back in time. Go back to the day that Jesus stepped onto that scene where there were hundreds of people sick and lame and dying around that pool, around that fountain. When he stepped over all those people who were dying and who ended up dying, he stepped over all of them to heal one of them. Go back to that scene and say, hey, would y'all rather be like this? Or would y'all rather there be one day hospitals where hundreds of patients would be recovering through means that were formally considered unattainable through human ingenuity? Would you trade places with them? Knowing that he might walk by your place, but he otherwise he probably isn't going to, going to. My point is, do you ever stop and realize that God is much, 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 much more glorified today than maybe he was yesterday? And, and guess what? The way he used to do it and the way he still can do it, but the way it used to only be possible, the way he does it now every single day in front of our eyes requires much more faith and much more reliance on God because there is the uncertain human element in it all. Yet that's why I think God is more glorified today than ever because God receives more of our faith and still more of our glory, more of glory because of how he works power through weakness. Do you understand that? That God is able to get, use people like us to do things that 100 years ago nobody even would have ever dreamed of? And we think, well, that's not God healing someone. You really think that? Because where did they get the knowledge? Where did they get the ability? Where did they get the know-how? Because it was made discoverable by God. 
who shared a little bit of his mind with those that are so much lower than him. I know that's not what this spectacle-obsessed religious world wants to hear, but I think it's what we need to hear. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that God can't do it the way he did it in the scriptures. He does that thousands of times a day in every country. But at the same time, going unnoticed are the miracles he's working through equally or even more impressive means from holding the universe together to guiding human hands to stitch someone's head back together. Go back in time and say, hey, one day someone's going to literally be able to cut someone's head open, do some work, sew it back up, and they're going to get back up better than they were before. People would think that would be an insane proposition. Yet it happens every day. May not be the way that we always want it to happen. But, but don't you realize that all this increases our capacity to glorify God and, and our capacity to glorify God only grows as our awareness of God's work grows. My, my point is, if you want to see what God is doing, just look around and just think for a minute at how involved in every little corner of the universe he actually is. People say, well, you know, Justin, I, you know, somebody read a book and learned how to do something. Yeah, where do you think that information came from? It's like the, the phone that you have, the computer you have, the silicon that went into the chips. Where do you think that came from? It came from the earth that God made and it came from elements that he put into the earth knowing that one day he would give people the impossible inspiration to put some things together that would leave even a generation before them speechless. I think it's pretty incredible what God does every single day. We just don't pay attention, do we? It's all God's handiwork. And all of it should always be increasing our faith, not just the fireworks, but the firestorms that we face. And that leads us to the next installment of Jesus' stories with John, in which John is going to introduce us to a brand new category for God's glory and power to be seen and felt that maybe you've never considered before. And, and after a few years of Jesus traveling through Judea and Galilee, up and down, people thought they had him figured out. He had done all sorts of signs and wonders to get Israel's attention like God did in the days of old. He began to make known that God's power, though, was not limited to these signs and wonders. But that sometimes, most of the time, God is working in unseen and unrecognized ways and is asking for us to trust in him in order to experience and see more of him. And there were occasions, like we read earlier, where they demanded signs and Jesus wouldn't indulge them because he wanted to take them deeper than the obvious examples would. So that brings us to John 9, where Jesus' disciples ask him a question that would have been the standard speculation in those days. They ask him a question about a man who was blind from birth, who most assumed was also born cursed. Notice when they ask him the question, they don't ask him, was he born this way because of somebody's sin? They assume he was born this way because of somebody's sin, right? They assume they don't even give it an option to be otherwise. So they believe, and this is how the world believed, they believe this man was prejudged by God and forever forsaken by God. So not only was he prejudged, but he had no chance at ever being anywhere close to God. And if you want to know why, look at, look at him. He can't look back at you because he doesn't see you. 
Have you ever read a story, and as the author or narrator is introducing different characters, that there are some characters that you know from the very first page or the very first chapter they're not going to have a chance? They're going to be the villain. They're going to be the bad guy. They're, they're the kid in the school that's always getting picked on, and you can see where it's going. Or they're the kid that's they're, they're the person that, that's clearly got some nefarious you know, intentions, and, and you know, it's vague in the first chapter. By chapter 5, obviously they're the bad guy. Uh, have you ever read a story that you can just tell from the beginning, this person's going to be tragic, a, a tragic storyline, this person's hopeless, this arc is not going anywhere but good, anywhere but, but, but bad, anywhere good at all. And sure enough, as you read the story, they, they never have a chance. They're, they're, they're from the very first page. They're pretty much doomed. In those days, these were, there were assumed categories of people from birth who were, were already written out of the story of God, whose stories would only ever be dark and tragic and sad and painful. These people were told by religion, by the powers that be, you never have a chance God can't help you. God doesn't want to help you because you are actually cursed by God. Now, let me just pry a little bit, if I can, into your, speaking of brain surgery, I'm not doing that, but let me just pry a little bit into your minds, if I can. A lot of us feel like our stories have a bit of hopelessness in them as well, don't we? Whether we're told by that, told by religion, or told by somebody, or we're made to feel by somebody, or we just think because of our own experiences. A lot of us feel like our stories are irredeemable and unsalvageable, don't we? And maybe it's not because somebody was uh, something that we were born aware of. Maybe it's because something that happened to us, something that we became aware of, something that we experienced along the way. And, and, and from where you sit today... You've given up on certain areas of your life ever being touched by God, ever being used by God, ever being changed for the good or bringing about any good. You've sliced off an entire part of your life, maybe all of your life, as never having a chance at redemption. And you put on a good face at church, but deep down, this is the way you feel. Unless, maybe you think, if God were to do some mighty, mighty miracle, maybe that would fix everything. But unless that happens, it's probably not going to happen. Maybe you've given up. This might be the way you feel about yourself in general, the way you feel about your family, your marriage, your uh, leveraging your life for anything beyond the daily grind that you're, you're resigned to. But, but it really all boils down to you not seeing how your problem or your pain have any purpose at all. Other than that, they hold you back and they hold you down. Maybe you blame God for it. Maybe you blame someone else for it. Maybe you blame yourself for it. But regardless of whose fault it is, you're left in the dark. I think most of us can relate to this. Most of our stories have chapters in them that explain why this is true for a lot of us. And that's why Jesus' response to his disciples when they ask him that question might be the most important thing any of you ever hear Jesus say. Because he's talking to you and me. He says, this blindness, this pain, and these problems are not on this man because of something he did or something someone around him did, but that or so that the works of God should be revealed and manifested and on display in him. He says definitively, this man is not cursed. This man's story is not irredeemable. This man is suffering from this blindness, suffering from this pain and these problems, not because of something he did or someone else did, regardless of why it happened. The reason why it has been given to him is so that God might work in his life your pain and your problems are not a curse I don't care whose fault they are your fault or someone else's fault 
They're not the end of your story. Your pain and your problems are not the result of or proof of God's absence, but are actually an entry point for God's presence and power in your life. Now, there's part of you that resists this. I think one of the most resisted church verses in the Bible is verse 3 because we can't see how that's true about our pain or our problems. Yeah, the Bible, of course, it happened in the Bible, but what about now? You and I struggle with seeing that our pain and our problems are actually an entry point for God's presence and power in our lives. We resist that, and we cross our arms and say, why couldn't it just been something different? Why, couldn't, why can't God just take it away instantly? Why can't it just happen like it happened for somebody else? You and I resist this truth. That our pain and our problems are not the absence of God, but they're actually the entry point in our access to God. There's part of us that's obsessed with the bombastic, the spectacular, the spellbounding. There's part of us that will doubt this because we've allowed our pain and we've allowed our problems to weigh on us so badly. We've become bitter and pessimistic and negative and hopeless. But God's invitation to all of us today, problems and pains do have a purpose. And maybe the thing you're waiting on God to do in your life, the way he's wanting to get your attention and increase your faith, maybe it begins with your pain. You hear me? It doesn't begin when your pain ends. It doesn't begin when your problems end. Maybe it begins right now in the thick of whatever you're facing, in the long chapter that you're currently in. God's work in your life is not being hindered by setbacks nor held back by circumstances, but actually it's going to be propelled forward by your pains and your problems. And you can define pain and problem however you want to define it because to you, it might be relative. And to you, pain to me, pain to you, it's all different, but it's all relative and it all weighs on us. You know, the most extraordinary thing to me are not the people who live to be 99 with zero wrinkles on their foreheads and zero bumps in the road. The most extraordinary thing to me are people who have bruises and bandages and yet they still smile and they're stronger than they'll ever be because they believe God is working in their story and he absolutely is. And they aren't tapping their foot demanding a miracle. They see the miracle in the moment of their pain. And they see... That God is far more present in their pain and their problems than he might would be otherwise. They see pain as a platform on which God is displayed and can be met. And how do they know? Because they've been on that platform and they've met him in ways they otherwise wouldn't have. John 9, 3 might be the most difficult verse in the Bible to get on board with, but I'm telling you, it's one of the most relieving, comforting, promising truths in the whole Bible. Maybe you've been told that the way you are, the way your family is, the problems you have, the pain you feel, maybe you've been told that disqualifies you or distances you from the ideal life. Maybe the people don't overtly say it, but they make you feel that way. Maybe you feel that way about yourself. But would you allow Jesus to speak into your heart and into your pain, into your problems today? And would you hear him say that your pain and your problems are not the absence of God, but are opportunities for us to know God and experience him much more than we otherwise would be able to? Listen, Jesus knew this wouldn't be accepted by all. He knew that even his own disciples would disregard this. He knew the church wouldn't always promote this. And that's why he says what he says in verse 4 and 5, that he must get this message out because the darkness is coming and unless he shines his light bright, there is no other light in the world that compares to him. And church, unless we lift up the light of Jesus and unless we cling to the light of Jesus and turn off all other lights, we won't always remember this ourselves. 
And many of, us, many of us have forgotten this, haven't we? More on that in a minute, but let's read on to see how the blind man encounters Jesus. When he heard these things, he spat on the ground, Jesus spits on the ground, and he needs what would have been kind of a, a, a makeshift remedy, but the blind man didn't know Jesus wasn't using ointment. The blind man didn't know Jesus wasn't using, using actually actual miracle-working cream or salve. The blind man listened to Jesus you know, around him, and he assumed, hey, he's working up something special. Actually, he just spits on the ground, and he makes a big wad of mud and water in his hands. And he takes that mess of clay, and he puts it on the man's face, and he whispers to the man and to the people around the man, because the man would have clearly been, uh, you know, uh, 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 accompanied by an entourage. Hey, y'all help this man get to that water over there, wash his face off, and once he's clean, he's going to see. And he says, and this is so insensitive, right, to the blind man, hey, go and wash in the pool. Hey, I'm not going to heal you. I'm not just going to wave my hand and take this away from you. I'm asking you to believe in what I'm saying. I'm asking you to trust, to trust me. Go to the pool over there and clean this mess off your face. And when you clean it off your face, you're going to be able to see. But think about it. To the blind man, he says, go and wash, requiring the blind man to walk by faith and not by sight. Of course, he didn't have sight. He says, Trust me. You know what God's message to you in the pain and the problems that you're facing is? Trust me. Walk by faith, not by sight. The ironic thing is this man appeared to not have any other choice. In his heart, though, he had to decide, do I trust the man who I can't even see to do something that requires literal blind faith? For a lot of us, we haven't allowed God to speak into our darkness, much less tell us what to do. And that's why Jesus says in verse 5, I am the light of the world. You know what made Jesus so bright to many that he encountered in his world? It was so dark in their worlds. To those overwhelmed by darkness, when they looked at him, they knew he was the way. But to those who had artificial lights, Jesus didn't seem so impressive. And can I, again, pry a little bit? Some of us, we've got so many lesser lights keeping us warm and leading us that we don't recognize Jesus for who he is. Maybe it has to get pretty dark for us to see just how bright he is. And that maybe, maybe your darkness isn't a curse. It's not the end of your story. Maybe it's God's way of making the light of Jesus undeniable and irresistible for you. I'm going to say something that's pretty on brand for me, but it still might rub some of us the wrong way. We, as Christians in America, are so spoiled by all of these artificial lights that when a few of them burn out, we act like children, worse than children. We act like a child in today's world. When their device runs out of juice, they demand that it be fixed immediately. And we can't imagine life without some of those little lights, can we? Take them away from us, and we pitch some whew, pretty spectacular fits. We lose our hope even though Jesus is standing right in front of us saying, I am the light of the world. 
And maybe it's by God's grace that those lights have been turned off because otherwise we would never, ever even considered Jesus to begin with. Back to the blind man. He chose to trust someone he could not see based on what he heard, based on what he believed was good news, hope was good news. So he goes, he receives his sight, and I love the exchange that follows in verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those that previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? And some of them said, This is he. Others said, Well, it can't be him because he's blind. This is him, but, but he looks like him. Or this isn't him, he looks like him. But he said, no, I'm he. I'm the guy that was blind. Therefore they said to him, how are your eyes open? And he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. I mean, you mean he actually, couldn't he have just like waved his hand? I mean, couldn't he have just did a, you know, struck lightning down around you and made everybody get their attention? I mean, couldn't he have done that? But, but, but he did what? He spit on your face? No, he spit on the ground. He spit on the ground. He put that on my face. He sent me to the pool. I got up from the water, and, and I, was, I could see. And I love verse 12. They said, where is he? <laughs> and, and I have to imagine when he says, I don't know, his implication is, I didn't see him. Get it? Because he couldn't, couldn't see. That's a bad joke. Okay. <laughs> he couldn't see before. He saw him. He could see after, but Jesus was gone. So then he introduces, so then John introduces us to the other side of the story. And here's where we're going to wrap up. The people who had been running the show for years, the people who popularized their beliefs that this man was cursed to begin with, they enter the story, verse 13. So they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. That's when the soundtrack changes. And it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And oh man, that really just throws a wrinkle in the story. They completely denied the blind man that he found purpose in his pain. They completely denied that he had received his sight miraculously because the way that it happened did not fit into the frame of beliefs that they had and weren't budging on. Oh, it was the Sabbath day, but it was more than that. Because in their minds, the fact that this man was born blind with a disability already disqualified him. So anything that potentially suggested that his story was going to be redeemed was already off base. You see, the Pharisees, like a lot of us, had a God box. And the God box is that they put God in a box and said, okay, God, if you're going to do anything, it's going to be on our terms, the way we understand it, the way we can explain it. And if it happens, it's going to have to happen the way we expect it to. And if it happens any other way, we're not even going to accept it. If God's going to do anything, it's going to have to happen the way we've decided it's going to happen. Oh, if God's really involved in my life, he wouldn't let these bad things happen to me to begin with. If God's really going to make a difference in my life, he's going to have to fix this, remove this, change them, change me, change everything the way I've told him. If God's going to make it easy for me to follow him and serve him, he's going to have to fix my life, my family, my country, my world. If they don't look the right way, then I can't even participate. I'm sorry. I want to show you something about these Pharisees that they, they, they are so out to unravel the story and deny this miracle. They find the guy's parents and they begin interrogating the parents. And there's a line in the story that exposes how more blind they were than the actual blind man. Look down at verse 18. But the Jews did not believe concerning him and they had, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents, who had, uh, the parents of the man who had received his sight. 
And they asked him, is this your son who was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He can speak for himself. Now they're afraid that if they defend the man's story, and more than that, Jesus, that they're going to be excommunicated just like the man's about to be. And verse 22 explains it all. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews for, G, for the Jews, underline this, had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, that he would be put out of the synagogue or excommunicated from fellowship. What is that line? They already agreed or they already made up their minds that they weren't going to accept anything that Jesus did because Jesus didn't fit in there box. Can, can I diagnose this with something today? Many, many, many of us suffer from what they suffered from. Willful blindness. When there's something you could see but you won't look because you've already made your mind up. You refuse to acknowledge anything that might not fit in your box. You've decided that it was that this is what God's going to have to do to get your attention. And if he doesn't do it the way you expect him to, then you're not going to accept it. You're not going to believe it. <laughs> can, can I just ask, who are we? Who are we to create a box for God to dwell in when the universe itself can't contain him? Who are we to say, God, you don't do it that way. You don't work that way. That's not the way uh, that, that, that I want you to do it. Who are we? I love how this story ends, verse 24, 25. So they called again the, blind, the man who was, who was blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is in her. At this point, they've accepted that he's been miraculously healed. Now they just want the man to say it wasn't Jesus. And the man can't help but say that it was Jesus. I love his testimony, verse 25. Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know. Though I was blind, now I see. Now I have open eyes. Because of Jesus' impact on my life. Church, there's a few lessons that we learn from this amazing story. And I think that, some of, that all of our stories benefit from at least some, some part of the story. The first lesson is, brokenness doesn't disqualify or distance us from experiencing God, but actually makes us more sensitive to and increases our capacity to experience Him and for Him. If you hear anything from this message, it's what Jesus said about the blind man at the beginning. This is so that God can be glorified. Your brokenness is not disqualifying you. It doesn't distance you. It is an opportunity. It makes you more sensitive and increases your capacity to know God. Don't deny the work that God wants to do through your story. Number two, some of us have his life so figured out, so ironed out, we're so smart, We've dismissed God from working in our lives because of our arrogance and our pride. Some of us, God will never work in our lives because we've already told God the way he's going to have to do it. It's like when you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor, hey doctor, unless you're going to do this for me, I'm not going to let you do anything to me. And they're going to look at you and say, why are you here? 
What are you doing here? They were blind, but they didn't even realize it. Oh, God can't do it on the Sabbath. Oh, God wouldn't put mud on a man's face and dunk him in the water. Oh, God wouldn't do it that way. God wouldn't, wouldn't do it the way he clearly did it. Oh, that's not really healing. That's not really a miracle. That's not really... But again, at that point, like, what are, what are we doing? Number three, it all comes down to will we trust and follow God's plans? even when it's difficult for us or challenges the way we previously see things. Jesus is God's proof to us that, we, that he can meet us where we are and bring us through whatever we're facing. He's also a reminder that we must walk by faith in God's plans as revealed through Jesus. There are a lot of things in your life that you might be having a hard time piecing together. There may be some things that you've never saw, you never see coming together. There are a lot of things about how God interacts or doesn't that will never make sense, and that's why you doubt, isn't it? We all doubt, don't we? We all doubt when we wrestle with these two things, the unexplainable versus the undeniable. You see, I doubt when I let what's unexplainable overpower what's undeniable. When I'm not willing to look at what God is doing because I don't understand it. That's doubt. But when I allow what's undeniable to overwhelm what's unexplainable, that's where faith is born. I can't explain everything, and I love being able to explain things. Half of my brain, 80% of my head is taken up by the half of the brain that thinks and explains everything, and that doesn't make any sense, but that's the struggle that I face because I want to explain everything. I want to understand everything. I want to be able to break it all down and put it back together, right? But where my limits are exposed, God's potential is activated. When God begins to work and higher and beyond our, way, beyond our understanding, the unexplainable might be multiplied, but the undeniable is even greater. And you know what I know that's undeniable? 2,000 years ago, Jesus showed up making outlandish claims about himself that should have made him a laughing stock in the history books. He said things like, I am the bread of life. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the way. I am the door. I am the light of the world. Who says that stuff? You can't talk to God unless I talk to God for you. And I've talked to him and I know what he's doing, so just trust in me. Who says that stuff? But Jesus did. And it got him sentenced to death at the end of his life. He was put on a cross for crimes he didn't commit. He suffered the worst possible death, but he made a point. Hey, y'all can kill me, but you better get used to me because I'm coming back. And three days later, he rose back from the grave. And you know why I believe that? Because everybody who followed Jesus unfollowed Jesus the week of his arrest. Every one of his believers became non-believers. Every one of his followers became non or unfollowers. But when he came back to life, they all signed back up. And they wrote their humiliation into the story. They didn't believe and then they believed again because they saw him back from the grave and then they spent the rest of their lives preaching Jesus around the world and they were all murdered martyred for doing so and now two billion people around the world believe in the Jewish carpenter as the son of God the savior of the whole world And you know why 
people give their life up for Jesus. You know why the last 2,000 years of history have been so impacted by Christians more than any other movement? Because all of those billions of people that have put their faith in Jesus have an eerily similar testimony. Once we were blind, but now we see. Not because we were all told to say a certain thing, but because we all experienced the same person. And it all went something like this. We stepped out on faith, we saw God redeem our brokenness, and we learned to wait on Him and trust in His terms. You see, this is why I believe. This is why I don't give up even when I don't understand and when things don't seem to be working out the way I thought they would. Because I've learned my circumstances are just another platform for God to display His saving power on. And what if what you're going through is an opportunity for God's glory and for your own growth? Listen, I don't want to ever be, I don't want anybody to ever be, to be afraid to express your doubt. But I think a lot of us are afraid to trust in God because we've been listening to excuses for too long. And we feel like if we give in to faith and we let go of our pride, we lose something. You see, doubt is your nature's way of clinging to control. Doubt is your mind's fear of losing control, but trust is transferring control to God's healing hands and God's sovereign plans. You can't allow that fear to keep you from transferring your faith. We may not be able to see how it comes together, but maybe that's the point. Maybe that's when you can experience the defining moment that you're missing and you're waiting on. Like the blind man, once I was blind, but now I see. Some of us were born into this life with some kind of blindness. Some of us have taken on a willful blindness. But today, all of us can choose to trust in Jesus and follow his plans and walk by faith and live by his terms. And hasn't he proven himself to be trustworthy? Hasn't he earned that kind of faith from us? He said, hey, as long as I'm here, I'm the light. But if I'm not here, you're hopeless. Come on, try to turn the light off of Jesus in your life. And oh, you've got enough lights going on in your, in your life that it'll keep you lit up for a little while, but they're just gonna drain you dry because they're not gonna do for you what only Jesus can. And sometimes they've gotta all be turned off for you to realize just how dark it is. May the light become so bright we aren't fooled by other competing lights because only his light is bright enough to open our eyes. For a lot of us, it all comes down to acknowledging and confessing that God is much bigger and brighter than we realized or we ever thought. And perhaps our blindness is an opportunity for God to become our one and only focal point so that we'll never be fooled again, so that we'll never lose sight again. So maybe you've got something in your life that you, don't, you can't see through. Maybe you were born with it. Maybe you've adopted it along the way. Maybe you don't think there's hope for you. Maybe you are stubbornly holding on to the way that you've always done things. But either way, we need the light of God in our eyes, opening our eyes, don't we? Amen. The light of God shines through Jesus. Only through him do we see the direction that God wants to lead us through. But we've got to allow him to open our eyes. To the blind man, he said, hey, you gotta trust me. I'm not just gonna do this for you. You have to trust me. To the Pharisees, you got to step out of that box you're in. Because I'm not coming to where you are. I'm not doing it your way. I'm doing it the way God has laid it out. And it's only through his way. And it's by trusting in his way that we actually see the work of God in our lives. So God can open our eyes if we will let the light of Jesus shine 
on us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the light of Jesus. Only his light is powerful enough to open our eyes. Lord, there is blindness in this room today. There are those that feel like their brokenness and their pain and their problems are too great and they'll never be able to see through them and because of them. Lord, to them, would you give them that hand, outreached hand, and say, I know you can't see me, but through my spirit, you're going to feel me today. You're going to know that I am with you and I'm inviting you to trust in me, to walk by faith, not by sight, through the spirit of God, aiding and leading you. Take my hand, trust in me. You will not be let down. Lord, for that one today that's just willfully blind, that we've just become so arrogant and so prideful and we've crossed our arms and say, God, if you're not going to do it my way, then I'm not going to participate. Lord, for that one, would you soften their heart? Would you break them down and show them that Jesus is the way and it's through his work that they can come closer to you and it's by his way that their life will actually be fulfilled the way they are waiting for it to be any otherwise. Lord, open our eyes that we may see. And Lord, through your spirit this morning, would you convince us today that God is bigger? God is bigger than we might have realized or thought he was. That our stories are not broken. Our stories are not hopeless. Our lives are not over if we will just trust in Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.